0: Welcome to Catholic America. Today, our episode is on communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, whatever you call it. Was Jesus drinking wine or grape juice? We're going to discuss on today's episode.
1: Hey, guys, thanks for joining us on Catholic in America. I'm Father Michael, and I'm joined, as always, by Father Tom Dillon and Father Doug Martin. And today we are talking about the Lord's Supper, uh, the Eucharist communion. There's lots of different names for it. What are uh, different people's experience of the Lord's Supper, different Christian denominations?
2: Well, I mean, you know, in, in general, there I mean, there's several different ones. I mean, one, one of them is, is that, you know, the, the, the bread and the wine is nothing really more than a, a symbolic Representation of the body and blood of Christ. And so they would call it, you know, a memorial or, or a bear memorial because, you know, it evokes the memory of what Jesus did for us. And so, um, and that's a pretty popular one, especially in the United States.
0: There's also other denominations who take kind of an approach where, well, when we are together as a community, Jesus is present, but when we're gone, that also this is just bread and wine. Some denominations have just like, uh, a spiritual definition
1: of the Lord's Supper. It's, it's kind of just a spiritual experience of remembering what God has done for us. You come together, you hand out, um, you know, bread, you pray a blessing over it, you hand out grape juice or wine, um, usually grape juice, and you pray a blessing over that. And it's, it's this kind of spiritual, you know, thoughtfulness of, of the Lord's sacrifice, of what he means to us, and, and for them can be an important experience as well. Right.
2: And then, you know, there really as Catholics and even as Eastern Catholics and Orthodox, we believe that this, you know, that Jesus truly is present body and blood, soul and divinity in the bread and wine themselves. And how that happens can be, you know, somewhat of a mystery. But we do believe that
0: that is the case because, you know, of what Jesus said in John 6. And then there are the agnostics and atheists who say that this is all a bunch of hogwash. Right, (laughs) right. Now this is yeah. ridiculous, you know, just kind of a, a yeah. some sort of magical rite. a bunch of hocus pocus, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> Which is exactly. interesting because that's right. that's
1: one of those things, you know, with the the Hocus the, the, the yeah. uh, you know the, the words of, of the Latin Mass that some people make a connection. I'm not entirely sure of the historical veracity of it. That that's where we got the word hocus pocus from. Yep. All right. I don't know, but uh, but but yeah, definitely some people see that when they come to mass or in the Lord's Supper or celebration at at any Christian denomination. And there's this this very um, official part of it where we take words that aren't our own, the words of Jesus, say something special is happening here, whether it's merely a remembrance or a spiritual um, uh, reality or a, you know, Jesus is present when we're gathered together um, or in the Catholic and Orthodox view that this is truly Jesus. The bread and wine cease to exist and becomes the body and blood of Jesus, Um, you know, that, that that's that's ridiculous. You know, you know, just how, how could that because they don't change. The elements don't change
2: at, at all. Right. And it's funny. You get it from basically the same rhyme. that most everybody uses the words of St. Paul and of uh, of Jesus himself when they when they, you know, institute this kind of, you know, when they celebrate as a community, this uh, the sacrament, this or this memorial, whichever it is. Um, I just find it interesting that we all use the same words and we mean a, something different, sometimes a lot different sometimes, you know, just a little bit of difference. So, so I mean, I, I guess the next question we need to ask is, is, is why? You know, why is there all these different opinions or, mm. or what are all the different opinions? Too? And, and, and yeah. I think,
1: too, a lot of the, the why, of the, di- the divergence of opinions comes from the fact that that we're very far removed from the Jewish context uh, that, that Jesus, St. Paul, the disciples, the early church was coming out of. We've had a lot has happened, you know, in the past 2000 years And so in a sense, when when we look even at the words of Jesus, when Jesus says something like remembrance, do this in remembrance of me, that people can have very different understandings of that. Uh, But we've also gone through the scientific revolution, um, you know, the the, materialist view of the world and society. But I I I think those two things being far removed from the Jewish context and also scientific materialism uh, really make it difficult to to mean the same thing when we talk about uh, what what is the Eucharist or what is the Lord's Supper?
2: Right, and, and and too these days it seems as well that anything that's spiritual we we say is superstitious. Not only do we view it with with suspicion, but we we say that spiritual things are, are superstitious because in a materialistic world they can't really exist, or if they do exist, is somehow spooky or,
0: or you know weird or not you know real. Yeah, there's definitely been a loss of the mysticism as a consequence of the. Enlightenment, I mean, with the focus on everything becoming having to be proven empirically, having to be proved materialistically, so there has to be some type of physical evidence in order for us to believe something. Um, but in the early church, as we're kind of talking, like the early church like, had a much more great appreciation of mysticism, which is like the mystical, the invisible things that are happening, and that not everything can be proven. This goes also back to like the Thomas, St. Thomas uh, the Apostle, who's doubting. And then, but the Lord, to heal his doubt, he comes up and says, Well, Thomas, come touch me. Mm. Touch my side, touch my hands. And it's from being able to touch Jesus that Thomas's materialism is also kind of healed in that moment. But still, like we still are dealing with the same consequences of materialism as well as like, what place does mysticism have in our faith as Christians? And that's where you're gonna find, like in a lot of denominations, um, especially some of the denominations that are more empirically uh, minded, have much less of an appreciation for the mysticism versus you have other denominations um, such as Catholics, Orthodox, who are much more mystical in their outlook, and say, "No, we don't have to prove empirically all things or materially." Like, no, we do have a greater appreciation of the mysticism. So there is mm-hmm. kind of that that light of like in the denomination, looking at like what is their appreciation for the mystical um, qualities of our faith and mysticism in general.
1: Because I think that brings up to people's critique of Christianity or of the early days of the church is that. Back in those days, whatever yeah. those days were, um, you know, whether it's the early days of the church or the Middle Ages, there was just this kind of credulity. Basically, there was this, you know, uh, just a blind faith, you know, that people people just, you know, simply this is this is holy here. And be like, oh, it's holy. You know, and there's never a questioning of that. Never any sort of struggles with that uh, at all until we get to the, uh, you know, you know as if the the Enlightenment or the scientific, you know, uh, revolution basically first brought in doubt or suspicion or questions. And I think maybe that that's kind of a caricature that I've definitely encountered from people thinking like, well, yeah, it was, it was easy for them to believe, but now we've got science. So it's a lot more difficult to believe that a piece of bread becomes Jesus. um, As you know, cause so, so, so thinking about that, is that, was that, was that, that credulity, is that something that that maybe has, has come up for people that you think you just have to cancel your reason in order to, you have have faith in the Eucharist or have faith that, that it really is Jesus
2: I think some of it yeah I, mean, I, I do I think that that is some of it I, I think the the idea that we're we've pulled the the curtain back now and now we know the truth and you know we, we see the the emperor in his clothes and, you know all those sorts of things yeah. I, I think that's that is very true but I think it's also what we miss historically speaking as well I mean, we, we've lost a, 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 our sense of history and our sense of true history I mean when we look back to the early church we do we see them as very very superstitious. When we, you know, as we go through the Middle Ages and even right up into the Enlightenment, yeah, I mean, they're seen as superstitious. They're seen as ignorant, and and in fact, it was in those years where we really came up with the most well-defined definitions of what the the Eucharist is itself, what the communion or the body and blood of Jesus Christ is, and that kind of is what led into the Reformation, the Enlightenment. That's kind of what led you know into the the beginning of some disagreements in the way that these things are viewed it is because there was such a a an educated and philosophical sense of what this truly is that we're we
0: we believe and not just a biblical sense i do think also like especially when you start talking about history um there is kind of a um and especially in our modern time as we are especially as groups and forces are kind of trying to reinterpret history or they're trying to spin history into a different light but there has been a tremendous loss, um, um, not, not universally, but especially like in our experience, my experience um, in the culture, of appreciation of people in the past. And like the appreciation of our ancestors, the appreciation of early Christians. And so like there's, at least when I hear people talking about, oh, well, everyone was superstitious and everything. If you actually read the writings... Like, they're not superstitious. Like, their thought processes, actually, I'd say reading the early church fathers and early Christians, as well as early Jews, their thought process actually, I I would put those same thought processes and the ways in which they think up to the average American person. And then I'd say, well, which of these people actually thinks more systematically and rationally? Yeah. So, like, looking at, like, and not judging, like, looking at history, like, and there's this sense where we kind of judge people from the past as being stupid or irrational. Versus, no, there has to be an appreciation for how people, because we really haven't changed all that much as human beings. We have more technology, but in terms of our fundamental nature, have we really changed? Have we gotten right. some, are Is the average American smarter today right. <laughs> than, the, than the person from, Midi, from the Middle East in the first and second centuries? Because like also, when you look at like also the question, like people think that, okay, well, everyone was superstitious at that time. Well, if you look at the Jews at the time of Jesus... And this is actually, you'll find this in the Acts of the Apostles, where Saint Paul um, uses this this major thing of the Pharisees, who were much more mystically minded, versus the Sadducees, who were kind of the They're kind of materialists, the materialists Basically. who don't yeah. Yeah. the materialists. That's where, like, he's in front of the centurion and in the tribunal, and he's being um, about to be. Condemned. And that's where he says, the reason why I'm being condemned is because I'm a Pharisee and I believe in the resurrection. I believe in angels, I believe in demons, I believe in all these things. Uh, knowing that the Pharisees of his time, who were not materialists, but who were the ones who believed in all the invisible realities, that he was starting a fight right there between them and the Sadducees, who only were the lists and the materialists. They said, No, there are no angels, there are no demons, there is no afterlife, there is no resurrection of the body. Um, so, like, even like looking at the at, at the historical context of like the time of Jesus and the, the apostles, like there were still these same people who were arguing about the same things that we're arguing about today. Yeah. And so, like, recognizing like the understanding of the Eucharist flourished and grew out of a time where it wasn't like people were irrational. Nah. Like there was there was these conversations that were be happening at the time. That's why actually the early church fathers were writing yeah. about the helping people to understand the Eucharist. Or to understand communion, like the real presence of Christ, and like what these things were. Yeah, against the backdrop of persecution. I mean, because
1: I think too, maybe we can talk a little bit about maybe people's experience of, of the Eucharist uh, or of communion. Um, Father Doug, you you uh, were a Protestant yeah. before you became Catholic, yeah. um, but recognizing that if you're just looking at the, the history of the Church, that whatever Christians believe about this thing, whether it's it's the Catholic view or the you know, that people were dying for this in the early days of the church, that people thought this was worth dying for. So what what, what, what were some of your experiences coming from a Protestant background of (laughs) of the Lord's Supper?
2: Yeah, so I mean, um, you know, I I grew up a um, a United Methodist, and so um, it it was amazing to me because, you know, looking back on it now, just how serious and and how much of a, a very spiritual experience it was to go to communion really is what, me in what gave me a hunger for the Catholic Church, and specifically what gave me a hunger for the Eucharist—that the Catholic, you know, the, the teaching of the Catholic Church itself. I, I think it led, you know, directly into it. But you know, I I can remember, um, well, like I can remember being a young boy, and, and one of my friends was uh, the the pastor's son, and I can remember us having to consume everything before, uh, after every after the service was over, we would consume the, the bread and the wine, the, or the grape juice that was left over, because we used grape juice. Um, we would consume all of that. And you know, at the time, I didn't really think about it. But now I look back on it, and I really question, why did we do that? What, what was the purpose of that? Um, I remember being in, in a youth group, being on a youth retreat one time, where the youth minister was the one who actually consecrated and said the prayers, you know, um, you know, this is the this is my body and this is my blood, and he used um, pepperoni pizza and Coke. Oh, nice! Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, delicious, not very sacred. Right. Yeah, very delicious. <laughs> yeah. So, so, and I'm not wanting to caricature because I'm not saying what group this is from. I don't want to caricature it, but what it does tell you is, is that there's some people that that may want to make this more common than it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And, and then you have other denominations that do this once a year because of, of you know, kind of how special it is. I, I also remember being a part of a church where we would go to the main service and, and one Sunday a month they would have... You know communion or, or Lord's Supper, and they would have it in a side chapel, and you just walked in and picked it up yourself and kept going, mm-hmm. uh, almost like a you know a convenience buffet. Line. Yeah, almost like a buffet. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so there's lots of different experiences out there, and that's one that's common. So that's not one that's a caricature or one that you know I'm I'm saying you know crazy things happen. This this is very common in that denomination and, and in several different denominations. Um, so, so, you know, I've seen all of that kind of stuff happening, and you know, and seeing that specifically the way I grew up as United Methodist, um, looking at that, I knew that wasn't authentic. I, mm-hmm. I knew this wasn't what the disciples were doing. I knew this wasn't what was going on in, in Scripture. And so, you know, for me, I, I kind of had to keep going deeper. I keep, I had to keep looking for, for you know, the, a true, authentic way of celebrating this, and specifically since. Our Lord called us to this. It called mm. us to this on a on a regular basis. We see the early church in the you know in the Acts of the Apostles where they talk about this being you know done daily. And so I, I knew what I was seeing was not authentic. Mm. I guess is what I'm saying. Not not necessarily my Methodist upbringing, but all these kind of crazy things I was seeing in high school and college. I think too. I mean, because recognizing um, obviously we're all Catholic priests uh,
1: that coming from a Catholic context as well. that's what the church teaches on this is, is, is steady and stable. And we will, we'll get in a little bit more on what the church is, but people's Catholics or people that know Catholics or been to Catholic churches, their own experience of it maybe is not always that it's easy to believe or or, because I know there are a lot of Catholics and different reports that come out, Pew Research Center and and different um, surveys that are done. And and we can kind of debate, you know, the merits of those surveys as far as some Catholics saying they, they don't, they believe this is just a symbol or they believe it's just a memorial or they don't believe it's in. They believe it's hocus pocus, you know, that, right. you know, kind of kind of that or, um, whatever percentage of Catholics and then other Catholics saying they're willing to die for this. This right. is truly Jesus. And they, they spend time adoring Jesus in the Eucharist, spend time praying outside of mass in front of the Eucharist, in front of the Lord's body and blood, which that kind of divergence too. that that can be difficult
0: sometimes to uh, to in, engage with. Yeah, this—I mean, this is experiential—but I, I will say that I think I went to when I was it was a scout trip when I was about 12 years old. Um, I think I did scouting for like one year before I, I dropped out. <laughs> Couldn't hack it. But I remember going on this scout trip, and we didn't have mass available because we had gone to like this ecumenical uh, scouting event, and but we went to the to the crossing service. I remember going in, and we had it. It looked almost exactly the same. Cause like we we came in had an opening prayer and it's like for my this was my first exposure to a Protestant service and then like we had like the three readings and then we had like actually the, the guy who gave the reflection was pretty good preached and then I was like okay and I was waiting and then all of a sudden like we had a closing prayer and it ended and I was like I remember like my twelve year old brain thinking there's some what what just happened. <laughs> Hmm. And now, part of that was like be growing up Catholic, and so like I had this expectation for the Eucharist. But then like we walked away from this, from that, and I remember like both being angry, as well as like I, I had this sense that something's missing. Hmm. And so, but for many, for many Protestants, like who they only have the Eucharist once a month or once a year, like there's not I, there's not a some, I don't think that there might be that experience of something missing. On the other hand, I have talked. I talked with someone who came to the church. Um, a year or two ago, and there was this sense of, like, when they came to the Catholic Church specifically, like, they came because there was a sense of wholeness, and it was something which they recognized. As soon as they walked in, they were at the Mass for the first time. They didn't understand anything that was going on, but they recognized this sense of wholeness, that they found what was whole here that was missing elsewhere. So I think that, for especially from, like, the Catholic perspective, as well as from people who are coming to the Catholic Church... There is a sense of they can't always articulate why, but there is this sense of wholeness that draws people. Um, And obviously, from our Catholic perspective on the Eucharist, like the Eucharist is what makes us whole, because the Eucharist is the very presence of Christ. But
2: yeah, yeah, and I think it's just different. I mean, you know, as a a, you know as a Protestant coming into the Catholic Church, it was just different. Uh, I mean, you could tell there was something else going on here. The the focus of the place was was different. You know, the altars in the middle, the, the ambo or the, the lecterns on the side, rather than the lectern and the or that's in the center, and there's no altar at all, or maybe it's a table in front of it, or whatever it is, but it was always that the preaching seemed more important than the rest of it. And and that's I mean of course we know that's not the same way in Anglican churches and in some Lutheran churches and, and especially um, yeah, in, in those Protestant branches, but in the others, it, you know, there is this kind of preeminence to the spoken word, which we believe we feed on as well. I mean, we, we you know, we we say every Sunday we go to two tables: the table of the Word and the table of the all, you know, of the Eucharist itself. But but there was almost this sense of that that was more important than. Than than, the communion itself. And so when you go into a Catholic church and not only do you see the altar and it's up high and it's got, you know, all this, I mean, flowers around all this stuff going on there and everything really converges there. Mm. Then it gives you a sense that okay, there's something different going on here. There's something different. And then when you find out that, you know, behind it in the tabernacle, that the presence of Jesus is there, that took a little while before, you know, I found that out. And so, as you come to there, I've had, I've had people come with me and they said, man, it was just something different. And you can tell. And and then, you know, as a former youth minister, I used to have my, my Catholic kids would want to go to Protestant services. And I'd tell them, yeah, go, you know, and experience it. And, and they would almost invariably come back and say to me, you know, there was something missing. Mm. And I don't think they were saying there was something missing in the sense of the teaching or, or the people or, or anything like that. It was that there wasn't the presence of the Eucharist there.
1: So we, I, I want to um, draw this back, too, um, um about what the Catholic difference is. I think, too, the, the good aspect about being Catholic is universal. It's, it's So it's all the good aspects of every Christian denomination, um, and even the healthy critiques and, and, and skepticism and everything else, all that's brought together in the Catholic understanding of the Eucharist, which we call the source and the summit of our faith. So we're, we're going to dive into the Catholic response about the Eucharist when we come back. Hey guys, welcome back. We're going to talk about the Catholic understanding of the Lord's Supper. You can support us on patreon.com. We'd love for you to do that too. We're so grateful to all our supporters. So let's talk about, as Catholics, our understanding of the Lord's Supper and why this makes such a big difference
0: in our lives. I think that, at least from my perspective, as well as many of the objections I've heard about um, against the Eucharist, people are like, well, God can't become present <laughs> in a little piece of bread, as well as like this objection Um, from some who will say uh, that's demeaning, like God becoming food for human beings, like also like the objection God who's so big, like this is irrational to believe that God who is so large and so big, who is universal, who is infinite, is going to be contained in something which is so small and so demeaning as becoming food for human beings.
2: And in so many different places.
0: Yeah, and uh, like how can God be present in that tabernacle and that tabernacle? So like there's the logical, mm-hmm. there's the people who have the logical problems and therefore it's kind of like the epistemological problems of like how do I know this as well as this seems to be irrational. But I would say in counter to that is if you believe that God can take on a human body, which is obviously the incarnation, Jesus, is the second person of the Trinity who became man. It is no more irrational to believe in the incarnation of God becoming man than to believe that. So the question becomes, can God do this? Can God, if he wants, become food for human beings? And I think that if you say that God can become a human being, then, which is obviously something. Without ceasing to be God. Yeah, without ceasing to be God, that God can become a human being, Mm -hmm. it is no more irrational to believe in the Eucharist than it is to believe in the incarnation. Hmm. But then obviously people were like, well, no, 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 he, he became a human being, but he, he's not gonna become food. I'm just like, from my perspective as a Catholic priest, as well as, but also a person who I think, I mean, try to be rational. I'm just like, so you believe, Like, do you understand like that the separation between God and man, <laughs> yeah. the infinite gap between God and man, like that's the whole point of actually, especially like the book of Hebrews as well, is talks about the humility God mm. humbling himself and taking on a human body, mm. which obviously this gets in the same question, which, because we call the Eucharist as Catholics, the body of Christ, Soma, which is what Matthew, Mark, and Luke use the Greek word Soma to describe the Eucharist, the body. But God who took on a body. John uses sarks. John yes, does which use sarks, a very strong, uh, yeah. uses that, that, that Flesh. But, so yeah. Like, yeah. But also yeah. like putting to like at least addressing like this the the supposed irrational side of of the argument where people say this is hocus pocus which is a kind of a slur against the latin use of when the priest says the, the words of consecration over mm-hmm. the eucharist they're like this is irrational this is magic this is not irrational and magic this is god taking on a human body and if you believe that jesus can be if you believe that jesus is the son of god and is fully present and likewise is the in, in the incarnation it's not irrational to say that God can also take on the properties of bread, because if he can take on the properties of human beings, he can also take on the property of bread. If he cannot be diminished when he becomes fully man, he also, if he takes on the properties of bread, he also is not fully diminished. It's not irrational. I think the, the rationality really is important,
1: because when you start to look, particularly through the scholastic period of the church, when theologians like Bonaventure or Aquinas are struggling with um, and, um, you know, with the reality of the Eucharist, you know, how the, uh, you know, the, the elements stay, the accidents stay the yeah. same, but the substances change using Aristotelian language. That in a sense, the finest, if you want, scientific minds have, yeah. have discussed this in, in philosophical terms. For me, I'm, I'm always where I, where I start to, to understand and go deeper and the Catholic understanding of the Eucharist, Orthodox as well. Comes from the from our Jewish foundations yeah. that mm-hmm. because a lot of times again we're so far removed from that when people hear for instance at the at the Lord's Supper where Jesus says do this in memory of me and remembrance of me so people are like so it's it's about remembering Jesus not like mm-hmm. Jesus is present but not really taking into context Jesus is doing the this in in a Passover meal which for them, memory means something much more than just like, remember when we did that thing right. last right. month? Remember when we went to the beach? That was a lot of fun. Right. For them, memory makes present the event. And a perfect example of it has been to a Passover meal or a Seder meal that they'll they'll treat it as if they are there the night yeah. that that the angel of death passes over. Why is this night, this night right now, different than every other night? Because this night we who once were slaves are now set free, that there's this, this recognition that when you're now in the mind of God, this memory is, is is in the memory of God, which makes present the event. So it makes present, and when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, when we celebrate the Mass, we celebrate the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, we believe we are there for for the, the night of the Last Supper, for Jesus being lifted up the, on the cross, for we're united to Jesus in a powerful way. So that that the body of the Lord and this encounter with the body of the Lord, communion with the body of the Lord, draws us into that living memory. And so it's not, it's, it, it's not less real because we're
0: remembering it. It's actually more real and, and more dynamic. Well, and, present. Well, and present. And present, absolutely. Well, what's also like a fascinating thing, which is also sometimes not understood in the ancient world, not only do the Jews, the ancient Jews, Have a mystical spiritual understanding, but deeply spiritual understanding of memory, the Jewish word for memory being zakar. Um, So that when you use Zakar, when you remember, this is also one of the things your memory, from the Jewish perspective, is what makes you like God. Mm Because like human beings' ability to remember things is different than the animals' ability to remember things, which is why God tells them specifically, especially in the Passover event with Moses, like do this in memory, and you become one with your ancestors in the moment of the Passover when you remember with them, you become present at the Passover. But also in the pagan world, and this is, a, this is what people don't recognize sometimes like with the ancient pagans. The ancient pagans, especially the Greeks, also had a very deep mystical understanding of memory. It's like the word aminesis for the Greeks, like when they remembered things, but also like the pagan world had this understanding that your memory, or actually the, um, in the pagan religions of like the ancient pagan cults, like you had mimsine, who was the titaness of memory but like in this like also she had the nine muses like the, so the muses which inspired people to great acts of creativity and to acts of like in the pagan world like my point is not to say that these things are right but my point is to point out is like the ancient pagans ancient greeks had an anthropology an understanding of the human person which says that the human ability to remember things was something which was deeply mystical and which made us like the gods mm. In the same way that the Jews had this understanding that when they remembered things, like this, they became um, they actualized what made them in the Imagio Day, what made them in the image of the God. And so like there was this deeply, it wasn't like your memory was not just a faculty of your brain, just synapses firing off. Like your, right. me, your memory was something which was deeply spiritual. This was it's also why the 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 language of the early church, when they're describing to Greeks, like what's happening in this mystical sense. This was not foreign to their to their understanding of concepts, as well as to the ancient Jews. Like this was also something in keeping. As we become more materialistic, and imper- and kind of empirically minded, and since the Enlightenment, uh, people have started to cast doubt on these different concepts and realities, which were average, common day concepts in the ancient world.
2: Right. I think it's important to remember about those things when you approach Scripture itself, especially when you come to each one of the institution narratives. Um, to, to have this understanding as you come into it, which really is basically makes the last all the Supper's difference. Yes. Yes. The when the, Jesus says the, last, the words. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and then when you see it in Paul and you know First Corinthians, and you see it as it goes throughout. To have that this understanding as you're coming into it, a, a Jewish mindset, an understanding of what the pagan culture would have understood at that time as well, because all these things influenced the Jewish believer when they were coming to this. Mm-hmm. So when Jesus says, "This is my body." And then says, you know, that you gotta, you gotta eat this, and uses a word for, you know, that dogs used for gnawing on something and for devouring it. Then, you know, we have a very different concept than just a, a memory of it, mm-hmm. or just doing something so that we think about it again, and, and so that, you know, it's a great memory to remember that, and you know, I, I mean, because at, at some point words are enough for us to remember something. Why, why would we need to reenact it? Well, I mean, the reason why is because there's something more going on there. Mm-hmm. It's not just the idea of we're just participating in something that happened a long time ago. It is us entering into that thing that happened a long time ago and receiving what they did a long time ago, which is this is my body. This is my blood. I remember reading um, in, in seminary as a Protestant. I, I can remember reading the argument between Luther and Zwingli, and I realize this is in the Protestant world, but... Luther would sit across from Zwingli. Zwingli believed that it was a bear memorial, that there was really, it was just bread and wine. And we just remembered it. And Luther said, no, 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 <laughs> Jesus is present here. And Luther would lean across the table. Anytime Zwingli would say something, he would say, this is, this is, is means is. And so from that point, Luther really never <laughs> left his Catholicism, mm-hmm. uh, trying to recreate it, of course. But, as Catholics, that's what I would do as well. Is I would say, no, Jesus is very clear here. This is feed on me. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. As nah. a matter of fact, in John six, yeah, nah. yeah, I And mean, in John six, he had an opportunity to back away from it. I mean, it's the ultimate, you know, lack of church growth idea that Jesus ever had. The crowds leaving. This is the opportunity to say, no, wait, guys, you misunderstood. I right. didn't mean actually eat. I mean, remember, you know, or eat spiritually. No, and no, no, assume no, in a general sense. Exactly. So, so he so leaned into it and tells yeah. the disciples, you want to go too. And I think that's such an important thing because as
1: Catholics, we say the Eucharist is the source and the summit of our faith, Yeah. which is a really, you know, the source, meaning all of our faith flows from this, this experience of the body and blood of the Lord flows from it and leads to it. It's also the summit that, that we go towards. So this encounter with the Lord that we become one flesh. And even thinking too that the whole, Biblical narrative is kind of this marriage union, you know, and, and that, you know, the, the wedding feast of the lamb and the mass is described where we receive Jesus as a union of the, the bridegroom, Jesus, uh, and the bride, which is the church, we become one flesh. So there's this, this, this profound intimacy. So, so thinking about that, how, how should this impact, how has this impacted you? Maybe we'll just start with us. You know, how, what difference has this made in your life, realizing that the Eucharist really is the body and blood of Jesus and that were and, and how 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 does that
2: change the way you pray or change the way that you live? For for me, it was I mean, it really was what led me to the Catholic Church, but it was because I knew there was something more to this, and I knew it was something that I needed. Mm. I knew that there was somewhat of an incompleteness in and in, in this is my feeling, but um, that there was somewhat of an incompleteness in my own spirituality. That, that, you know, receiving and hearing became more of an intellectual thing. And even though there's spirituality that comes with that, you know, it was the perfect blend of, of spirituality and mysticism as we're talking about in intellectualism, where I come and actually feed on Jesus' body and blood that I received strength from this, that all the parables that that Jesus was telling about the vine and the branches and and all of these things about the way we feed on him, the way spirituality works and comes through these things, that 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 was something that was necessary, that I needed, and that without it, I was incomplete. Hmm.
1: I think for myself that just realizing how much more scripture the Bible comes alive in light of the Eucharist, because I think a lot of times people have You've got yeah. either, you know, the Lord's Supper or, or the preaching of the word. And so we want to emphasize the preaching of the word. So, yeah. you know, maybe that's some people's experience of Christianity or even Catholicism. You don't need the word of God because you have, you know, the right. sacraments or something, which, you know, false dichotomy. Right. And being Catholic, I think this is the invitation for anyone who's not Catholic or exploring this, is always the both and. Yep. Um, that the more that I come to know Jesus in the Eucharist, the more the word of God comes alive. The more reading the Bible and recognizing you know, that every page of scripture of, you know, the Passover, the manna in the desert, um, you know, the, the the sacrifices in the temple, all those find yeah. this fulfillment at mass as I'm, I'm hearing the Old Testament proclaimed, as I'm standing to hear the gospel. And then as I become one flesh with Jesus in the Holy Eucharist, it's kind of like the whole thing begins to make sense and it begins to animate and fill every part of my life. Yes.
0: Yeah, going, I mean, going to the scriptures, there's so many things that, especially as you were saying, it comes alive, but even the Old Testament comes alive in an entirely different way. It's like you go back to, I think it's Isaiah, Isaiah of the Psalms talks about, even if a mother forgets her child, I shall not forget you. And so, this notion of what in the Hebrew is called rakam. So, rakam is, like the, is, the, is the maternal love of God, mm. um, which stems forth that, the, that even a mother's love is only a mere reflection of the love of God. Which is why, actually, the early church fathers, like Augustine and then John Chrysostom or Christostom, depending upon how you pronounce his name. But both of them referred to, actually, the Eucharist as the milk of Mm. God, by which God nourishes uh, us as as his child. And therefore, we come before God. So often, like, and also, like, this is not just conceptual, because there's often, in my own personal life, like, there are some times where I need that love of God who nurtures, who takes care of me, who I come before him. And, like, the Eucharist is an impact moment where I experience the recalm of God, right? Where God, like, in those moments of my heart where I'm broken, like, I'm, I'm seeking just um, just the love of God in that way. Like, I can come. Also, like, where even the church fathers and where we have other different saints who have talked about the Eucharist being the bridegroom who gives himself to the bride. And so, like, there's those moments where, like, I come before God as the lover, I come before God who is the only one who actually, even in the spousal relationship, the spousal relationship is a mere reflection, as we see from Ephesians chapter five, is a reflection of the deeper spousal relationship between God's desire for intimacy with man, male and female, and himself. And it's like in that spousal, like there are times, especially as celibate priest, uh, mm-hmm. different from uh, your experience, Doug, yeah, as a married yeah. priest, but there's moments like I desire this this connection. Mm. And like this connection is not a mental connection. That's the thing. Like I don't want I don't want a Gnostic understanding of my faith. Right. Which is like all my, my faith is something which is a, a system of ethics or it's a system of knowledge which is contained within my head. Like yeah. even in the Hebrew, like there's the difference between thoughts, but thoughts stem from the heart. And so like the deeper thing is like the heart. It's like the guts. Yeah, I'm not yeah. talking about my feelings. Yeah, I'm not talking about my feelings, because feelings are surface word. level. Like the heart is from whence feelings and then your thoughts stem forth. But, like I want this connection to God. Hmm. Which is uh, both in terms of the calm, but I want this connection to God as the as the spouse. Yep. And so, like in the Eucharist, I connect to God as a spouse, especially when I'm holding and I'm acting in persona Christi as a priest. There's this tremendous moment of intimacy, um, mm-hmm. and well, it's, it's not it's, one with one with, but let's just yeah. like yeah. say it's so much more than just an intellectualism. Yeah. Yeah. Like for me, it engages not my head, but it engages the heart, and where I find actually where I find union, satisfaction, where I find intimacy, um, as well as the possibility of further growth. Like that's where, like for me, like the Eucharist is the source in something because whatever is lacking in my life, whether it be like I feel not loved or I feel unfulfilled or things, I can come to the Eucharist. And if I have faith, I can find all of that satisfied in the Eucharist because that is Jesus, that is God. So what are some ways
1: then, because yeah, I, I think we can go on and on about the difference the Eucharist makes in our lives and how we're every day, you know, it, it engages the intellectual. You have, you have the whole intellectual tradition about, about, you know, the theology of the Eucharist. There are thousands and thousands of pages. We take this seriously, folks, you know, if you, if you don't believe us, the biblical foundations of it, everything that was prefigured in the Old Testament, that's fulfilled in the New Testament, the early church, people dying for the Eucharist. So what are some ways that people today, whether they're Catholic or, or seeking or, or exploring this, or, or maybe not Catholic yet, that they can begin to maybe appreciate this more, or maybe even take some first steps towards, if they're not Catholic, towards even becoming coming into full communion so they can receive the Eucharist?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I would say for someone who's Catholic, to, to have a deeper appreciation or a deeper understanding of this, and, and understanding not necessarily only intellectual, but spiritually as well, is this attend daily mass as much as you can not just mass on sunday not just once a week but but to attend daily mass and to begin to to allow yourself to experience this because we know that that what we believe affects or what we pray is affects what we believe and so mm-hmm. as we come to the eucharist to pray we we come in in belief as well and then another thing i would say is is take the opportunity to go when the blessed sacrament is exposed not not just when the Blessed Sacrament is there in the tabernacle in the church, that's an opportunity to come and spend time with Jesus physically. But when he's exposed as well. And, and when you come, I used to tell people this all the time. If you have a, a problem or, or a lack of belief in this being Jesus, come to adoration, look him face to face and say, Jesus, show me who you are. Hmm. And, I, and I've told people, anytime I've ever known of anyone doing that, they've always come to a better understanding and appreciation of what this is, of who this is, and how it affects them spiritually.
0: I'd say for people who are struggling with belief in the Eucharist or who are skeptical, um, to ask a very simple first question of oneself and to pray and to reflect upon this one question, which is, can God do it? If God wants to do it. Now, but that's the question. Can God do it if he wants to? And just to reflect upon that question first, is God capable of becoming bread. Okay, because that's a major hurdle that some (laughs) people have to and you have to pray through that. You have to ponder that. And then then go to if you want to look to the scriptures, go and read John chapter six. And don't interpret John chapter six, because that's the whole I mean obviously that that's that's a different whole different ballgame. But I'm just saying read the surface layer. Read the literal literal meaning the surface layer of John chapter six all the way to John 660. And then get John six six six. So read John chapter 6 and just read, one, can God do it first? And then the question becomes, does God, is this something which God wills? Mm. And then read John 6. And then a really great book, which actually gets into a, a Eucharistic theology, but which is told on a practical level, which I think that most people can understand because he's a very good writer and apologist, which is Read the Supper of the Lamb by yeah. um, Dr. Scott Hahn. The Lamb Supper. The Lamb. Yeah, the Lamb I'm sorry. The, the, the Lamb. The Lamb Supper by Doctor Scott Hahn. Yeah, uh, which goes into the Jewish roots of the Eucharist to give your to give a, the person, the reader, a better appreciation of the time and place. And that's where, like, you look at like the exegesis, understanding what the writers intended. Yeah. And the writers of the of the Gospels were predominantly Jewish. John was a Jew. Matthew was a Jew. Uh, Mark was was I believe uh, was also is understood to have been a Jew because he's a yeah. cousin. I mean, he's the nephew of Peter. Uh, the only one who was not a Jew was Luke. Right. Um, but then, Gentile like, convert, and then obviously I mean, Paul yeah, was yeah. a Jew. So, like, understanding who the authors were and what was the context. This is the exegesis. Understanding who they were and what they meant by these words, as opposed to us projecting our modern-day sentiments or our modern-day understanding onto the text, understanding this. And so that's why I'd say Scott Hans The Lamb's Supper, great book. And great. i can that,
2: that was one of the books that really uh, began my... My journey was, was reading that and how it affected me and seeing the deeper meaning that's there from the Jewish roots. I would you know? say
1: something else in addition to, to going to daily mass, spending time in adoration, Eucharistic adoration, reading John 6. Uh, something interesting because what we believe about the Eucharist, part of the teaching of the church is that it's, it, it's not empowered by our belief. As in like, right. if you and I have doubts, even as priests, we have doubts or people have, have doubts The Eucharist is still the Eucharist. Jesus still shows up. The the bread and wine still become the body and blood of Jesus, which a great example of this, there's this interesting kind of, you know, aspect of of church history called Eucharistic miracles. And if no one's heard of this, probably the most famous one is in Lanciano, Italy. And it's where a priest was doubting the Eucharist, doubting that it was really Jesus. And he says the words of the consecration and then the bread and wine become actual flesh and actual blood. And it's still there today. This is like a, you know. A, A-B positive. Yeah, A-B positive. A-B positive. This is like a thousand years ago. It's a very long yeah. time ago. You know, how long? And it's still present there in Lanciano, Italy. So even checking out Eucharistic miracles as maybe something that, that, that maybe can can be a help to somebody. Um, we don't believe in the Eucharist because Eucharistic miracles have yeah. happened, you know. Um, but, but it's one of those aspects of our faith, again, that en- engages every, you know, if you're more philosophical, read Thomas Aquinas. If you're more, yeah. you know, yeah. mm-hmm. um, more more biblical, Scott Hahn's a great place to go. Um, you know, but that experiential aspect no, nothing nothing substitutes for actually spending time with Jesus in the Eucharist. And, and I, I would really say too, maybe just just in closing for this. Um, first of all, praise God, guys, for you guys being yeah. priests that yeah. we, we get to celebrate the Eucharist, yeah. which is amazing. But also too, just for for those that are watching or, or listening to this, that um, we encourage you that this the Eucharist is is uh, the source of some of our lives. And if you want yeah. a deeper relationship with the Lord, if you're not yet Catholic, maybe start take, t- taking some steps towards checking out the Catholic Church, um, asking questions, going to Mass, um, checking out an RCIA program, um, but but to realize that God wants more. And I think that's maybe the thing that, that, that we, uh, we realize in this. He doesn't just want you to have intellectual relationship or just an experiential or just, just a mystical. He wants all of those things. Right. So, and we receive that through the Eucharist. Praise God. Well, guys, um, Father Doug, Father Tom, thanks so much for this conversation. Thank you guys for watching in this conversation about the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Hopefully it was helpful to you. Thank you for liking and sharing and subscribing um, our videos here from St. Dominic Media. We hope to see you next time. God bless.